2: Shop now, in store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone.
0: Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm
0: Joe McCormick, and today we're going to be beginning an exploration of the invention of air conditioning. This is going to be a multi-part series. Mm-hmm. And for the purpose of this conversation, we're not going to be talking about all cooling, refrigeration, all making stuff colder technology that has ever existed. We're going to be focusing on the invention of systems primarily for cooling and removing humidity from interior spaces, primarily but not exclusively for the comfort of humans and other animals.
1: Right. That, now that said we are going to mention some 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 various uh, cooling technologies and air circulation technologies on the path to modern air conditioning exactly so
0: i will say that i can speak from pretty recent personal experience actual actually multiple experiences to say that if you are lucky enough to have air conditioning in your home, in your workplace, in the places that you dwell, especially in the hottest months of the year, especially if you live somewhere hot, like in the American South or anywhere near the equator, I guess. Or,
1: or Atlanta. Yeah. Or Hotlanta, as the, <laughs> they, they, know, they, they do, do not call it. Um, if,
0: if you are one of these lucky people who has this technology, you should not take this blessing for granted. You should remember every sweltering day to be thankful for this luxury. I once lived in an upper Upper floor apartment in an old house in North Carolina. So there was an apartment below me, and I went the better part of a blistering summer there with no air conditioning. And you know, I I don't want to over dramatize my old my own struggles, but I just remember like my brain didn't work. I remember standing at the refrigerator with the freezer door open and my head stuck in it, which don't <laughs> do that folks. I mean, that's not energy efficient. But I you know, it just short-circuited all my rationality to be in this 100 degree apartment. I remember I would lie on top of my bed and try to sleep at night, just making like a human sweat angel, like a you know, a human shaped sweat imprint on the top blanket. It was disgusting. And and more recently, actually just last year, our home air conditioning unit completely broke down in the middle of summer and it was several weeks before we could get the problem fixed. And again, maybe I'm just a wimp, but I found that in a house that's like – 90 degrees plus or close to 100 degrees with high humidity, my brain just broke. I remember sitting at a desk trying to do work with like a wet towel around my neck and a box fan propped up pointing at my head. And it just – it never felt like enough. The hot, swampy summers down here can be brutal. And it really makes you appreciate, again, how lucky you are if you have access to this modern convenience. Yeah,
1: especially in – Hotlanta or Swamplanta, we Mm -hmm. could call it that, I guess.
0: But I got to give a shout out to my AC guy, Mike, who
4: Robert (laughs) here
1: referred me to. Oh, yes. Mike is great. He he fixed uh, mine up as well. And and indeed, air conditioning is one of those things When, when it's working properly, you you hardly notice it at all, and you just take it for granted. Mm-hmm. When something goes wrong, that's when uh, you start sweating, mm-hmm. <laughs> in in all possible ways. Uh, sweating at night, getting the you know proper terrifying night sweats on. And you know one of the things is as I get older, I do find that I enjoy the heat. Like uh, I, I love to read and write on my front porch mm-hmm. and I'll generally like push that as far as humanly possible in either direction. Like when it's colder, I'll bundle up as much as possible but I can't quite bundle my fingers and then at that point I'm driven inside and I have to come out when it – you know, the warmer portion of the day. And then when, as it gets hotter and hotter … Uh, you know, I'll do whatever I need to do to try and keep the mosquitoes away. Uh, you know, burning like um, you know ritual citronella candles and uh, wearing more clothing than is perhaps temperature appropriate, just to keep them from biting me, that sort of, uh, feasting on my blood, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, but but you know, I don't mind sweating out there. I can also uh, you know bring out a, a fan if I need to the, to keep the air moving. And of course, uh, as is common with with a lot of uh, you know front porch scenarios, if you have a porch swing or a hammock on hand, like mm-hmm. that's ideal because you're able to keep the air circulating by keeping yourself in more or less continuous motion. Yeah. Um but then eventually you reach the point or I reach the point where I, I have to come inside because it mm-hmm. will just get too hot and I enjoy having the choice, the privilege of being able to come inside and enjoy the, you know, the cooler air. And you know, it's not only a privilege of our modern age. It is a privilege in our modern age.
0: Yeah, there are millions of people around the world in hot climates these days without air conditioning and air conditioning does not come without costs.
1: That's right. I should also say that on my front porch, having uh, you know a, a readily um, uh, refillable supply of ice water mm-hmm. is uh, is a must. And of course, that's that the, the history of refrigeration is uh, is right up there with the history of keeping spaces cool. Uh, so you know, both of these are technologies that we take completely for granted. So many of us that are listening to this podcast, you have not only. Um, Uh, you know, cool air inside your home, but you have a a miraculous machine that can turn liquid water into ice. uh, Perhaps automatically. And even if not automatically, like still very passively. Uh, You're not having to actually (laughs) crank it out.
0: All right, well, before we start talking about air conditioning systems or pre-air conditioning systems for enclosed spaces, we always like to ask the question, what came before? I guess the deepest you can go on what came before for air conditioning technology is biological cooling systems and and thermoregulation in the body.
1: Right, and for us, that means sweat. And and this is going to be key to uh, the methodology of all these various air conditioning and temperature control uh, technologies that we're going to discuss in these episodes. Mm -hmm. So your body produces sweat. And, uh, with, uh, and sweat evaporates from the skin to cool the body. That's essential is the evaporation.
0: Right. It's kind of how uh, – in fact, it works for any body of water, right? You mm-hmm. can take a just a bucket full of water and the evaporation off the surface of that water will cool the water in the rest of the bucket because that evaporation is an energy-hungry phase transfer and it has to suck energy out of the heat from the rest of the water.
1: Yeah. Basically, liquid water evaporates into vapor paper using the thermal energy in the air resulting in a lower air temperature. The water and sweat absorbs your body's heat energy and then evaporates, lowering your temperature in the process. That is evaporative cooling.
0: Yeah, evaporative cooling is one of the really cool things about chemistry when you really think about it. Here's a question that's kind of similar. How come when you boil a pot of water on the stove and it reaches the boiling point, the entire pot of water doesn't transform into steam all at once? You ever think about that? I yeah, I was wondering about this one time. These I, are
1: the kind of thoughts one, one, uh, one contemplates while watching the uh, the pot of water boil. <laughs> right, right,
0: one of the most entertaining of activities. Uh, but yeah, it can it can raise some interesting questions in your mind. And I think the way this works is that. As water boils, some of that liquid water is turning into steam. That's a phase transition. It's the same thing that's happening on your skin. Liquid Mm -hmm. water in your skin is turning into water vapor, into steam and coming off of your skin. But as that happens in the pot, as that water is turned into steam, the pot of water loses energy in that process because it's a massively energy-hungry process to turn water into steam. And so – as the water is turning into steam, the water is constantly cooling back down, and you have to keep putting more energy into the bottom of it to
1: keep it boiling. And of course, this is largely a good thing because I'm yeah. thinking about scenarios in which, in which uh, like large portions of water um, are turned to steam instantly, and you're generally talking about an explosive situation. You're talking mm-hmm. about an expansion of steam uh, that can uh, can have you know catastrophic effects. You wouldn't want uh, the pot of water you're boiling for spaghetti to suddenly become steam all at once. No. I mean, you need massive energy
0: inputs for Mm -hmm. that kind of thing to happen just because it takes so much energy to turn water into steam. And again, that's a good thing for your body. Taking that energy from the body cools the body off. Now, when we turn to technological solutions for cooling a space, there were actually tons of brilliant inventions or, or little innovations and tweaks in the design of homes and buildings uh, for this purpose before the invention of modern like electrical air conditioning using heat pumps or refrigeration or anything like that. Yes,
1: the accumulation of all these little tweaks, all these little advantages that all add up to make hot uh, temperature environments more bearable. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of like, you know, the, the argument that you 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 win a battle via all the small little advantages to your side, yeah. you know, and it's very much the, the case with, uh, you know, w- waging war against a hot uh, climate.
0: Let's talk about some of these little innovations throughout history the first is I would say the absolute most dirt simple probably doesn't even need to be mentioned but won't mention it anyway how about a roof that's right. Having, having a top-level covering provides shade, and that blocks the radiation heating from the sun. So that's one of the most important innovations
1: in designing a cooler space. Yeah, in the same way that you would take, you might take comfort uh, beneath a tree, mm-hmm. or you know, by the side of a cliff, uh, some naturally occurring shade. Uh, we are able to construct our own shade as well. Mm-hmm. But of course, by having a house that has a roof on top,
0: if all else fails for keeping the house cool at night, one option you would sometimes have in the ancient world is you could go out and you could sleep. Up on your roof. This seems to have been common, for example, in ancient Egypt, where a significant amount of living and sleeping happened on people's
1: rooftops. Uh, that's right. Uh, in in past episodes of uh, now, I honestly can't remember if it was this show or stuff to blow your mind. We talked about some of the ancient cities. I think this was in our um, toilets episodes. Uh-huh. We're talking about uh, the uh, the archaeological remains of cities in which uh, you know there were entrances on all the roofs. Yeah, um, but also we can look to ancient accounts, say um, uh, Herodotus' uh, writing of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, uh-huh. or uh, in Jewish lore, uh, King David glimpsing Bathsheba bathing. Uh, uh, well. On the roof of the palace.
0: Yeah, I guess the idea is probably that it was like nice and cool out in the open air on the roof at night. Yeah, where
1: else are you going to be?
0: But there are tons of other little ways that w- once you go beyond just having a structure with a roof to block the sun, uh, and you start building houses with openings and windows and different hallways and rooms. There is – there's all this investment in the architecture of a house to help aid in cooling. And this would include the positioning of windows or other openings, the shape of rooms and floors that allow ventilation of the inside and encourage cross breezes to pass through. Also something that I feel like is is less – is thought about less in modern home design is the positioning of windows away from direct sun or in the shade. Mm -hmm. I think because houses are designed with the idea of air conditioning – in mind often these days, there's less planning put into okay where are the windows what kind of light are they going to get is there a tree to shade the window and so forth
1: yeah uh, we'll, we'll definitely come back to this in, in the future but we we, we see this uh, this this trend where all these tiny advantages we're discussing in the with the advent of modern air conditioning so many of them were just abandoned because they weren't seen as useful anymore as necessary to, to keep a, a cool uh, you know a, a habitat and part of the problem then is when the air conditioning goes away or when the electricity goes away, whatever is disrupting things, Mm -hmm. you have to fall back on a habitat or a building that is not built with any of these advantages in place. Or even if you're not talking about losing your air conditioning, if you're just
0: considering energy efficiency. I mean, I think there are some houses that are designed without proper thought about energy efficiency for heating and cooling in the house, even if you have modern heating and cooling devices.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you're a a kid and you're around air conditioning, I remember just loving it. I was like, I just love the smell of the air conditioning and just Mm -hmm. want it on all the time. You know, when you're an adult and you're actually paying the bills, you don't necessarily want the air conditioning all the time. It would be nice if it went off a a few times during the month of August. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, you know, it would be nice to have so many of these other uh, little, um, you know, uh, 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 design advantages uh, in place as well to just reduce the necessity of running the AC. Here's another design advantage
0: that predates modern air conditioning. How about construction that takes advantage of the fact that warm air rises, mm. also known as the chimney effect? So one example of this might be high ceilings. Right. Another is topside ventilation, including passive roof vents or more recently an attic fan. And so th- this can be paired with windows to create this ideal airflow situation where cool air flows in through open windows on the lower floors and then is drawn up through the house in a sort of air column that goes up toward the attic and toward the roof, creating pressure that pushes the warm rising air out through vents in the upper floors or in the ceiling or roof.
1: Yeah, we, I have one of these attic fans in my house and mm-hmm. it's, um, it, it's it's like being a spaceship you know, because you can just uh, especially if you have only like one window open you mm-hmm. can just create this terrific flow of air through the house, uh, which can make a huge difference if, uh, you know, you've got kind of like it's gotten a little warm, it's gotten a little hot inside the house and you have like a nice comfortable temperature drop outside of the House mm-hmm. You can you know easily equalize things like that,
0: a couple of other things would just be what do you make the house out of? Yep. Is it insulated in the proper way, something that 's not going to heat up and pass heat from the outside to the inside. And then another thing would be the outside coloration of the house. That can affect
1: how it absorbs heat. Yeah, do you live in a, like a black obelisk or do you live in a, you know, some sort of a white reflective uh, uh, domicile? And it's yeah. going to make a huge difference. And back to your point about uh, heat rising, uh, you, know, this also, you, know, you see this in designs of you know, older houses with high ceilings obviously. It's mm-hmm. the the heat is going to rise out of the area in which you are living. But also you look at a lot of modern houses – and uh, the reliance on AC, and where do you see the master bedroom? You see it on an upper floor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like it becomes more of a selling point if you're you know, saying, okay, it actually has a master on the main floor. And a lot of that has to do with you know, as, as individuals get older, it's nicer to not have to go up a flight of stairs in order mm-hmm. to get to your bedroom. But, but also you have to, to realize it's going to take more to keep that cool up there. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's ultimately from a temperature uh, standpoint, perhaps it's better to have the, the master bedroom on the main floor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One thing I think we shouldn't forget is how common – I mean we mentioned people sleeping on the roofs. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't forget that in hot climates, it used to be extremely common for people to sleep outside. Oh, yes. Uh, I I was reading about this. In in times before air conditioning and in places where there's no air conditioning now – it's just very common for people to sleep on porches in front of their home or on the deck behind their home or, in, uh, or, or just up on the roof or somewhere out in the yard. I mean, this, this remains a way to
1: stay cool at night. So we've talked here about a number of examples of passive cooling design, mm-hmm. uh, you know, f- far different from the active cooling system that you may have in your home or your apartment window. But we also have to just consider that many of humanity's oldest civilizations, uh, they resided in some pretty sweltering places. And while perhaps uh, you know, such peoples were less coddled by temperature control technology, uh, you know they still had to do what they could to keep things chill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I ran across a, a very insightful article. This was, a, this was in Energy Conservation and Management in 2008. And it was a paper by um, Hatamapur and Abedi. and it considers it concerns the the town of uh, the city of Bushir in southern Iran. This is a region where today you see more than sixty uh, percent of total annual power consumption uh, going to power AC window units, yeah, uh, but people have been living uh, in this region, for at least five thousand years, mm-hmm. and in this paper, the authors point out the various strategies that were utilized to keep things cool. Some of these we've already discussed, but uh, but just to you know tie them to a specific location in a very you know long uh, habit- habited uh, uh, region of the Earth, they point out that the buildings were constructed closely together, but with spaces for circulation around each, and they were built in the direction of seasonal fresh and cold winds. The lanes were narrow for the generation of circulation, and they employed ventilation shafts, balconies, terraces. The separation of heat generating spaces, such as kitchens, uh, that's another key one. You know, yeah. to think about because uh, I think a number of us have probably noted, especially during the summer, mm-hmm. just how hot it gets in the kitchen mm-hmm. when you're just doing something like cooking, um, you know, frozen pizza. Mm-hmm. It, it, you could keep things a lot cooler if you made sure that your your kitchen was somewhere else, was located in an adjacent building. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I think it's one of
0: the appeals of grilling in the summer. Like yeah. it's nice to be out in the uh, in the nice weather while you're cooking, but
1: also the th- the thing that gets hot is <laughs> not inside your house. Yeah, I think it's a great point. Um, also, yeah, balconies, coverings for uh, d- direct uh, sunshine, windows and walls, trees planted for shading, colored glasses in the windows, and uh, wooden screens outside the windows, high-roofed buildings, light roof colors, and low-conductivity ma- materials like uh, gypsum for shell walls. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, I, I found that, you know, again, insightful considering that you know, this is a region that, uh, that people have been living in for at least 5,000 years. And throughout that 5,000 history, most of it has been without the aid of a modern AC unit.
0: But instead of having modern electrical air conditioning, they had the, this sort of army of other little yeah. ingenious design solutions to help keep things cool.
1: Yeah, every little
0: advantage. And later in the episode, we're going to talk about one really ingenious system that you see, especially in ancient Persia. This, this city was in ancient Persia. But yes. uh, uh, maybe we should take a break now. And then when we come back, we can talk about ancient Egyptians and ancient Romans.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. All right. We're back. So the ancient Egyptians were known to have employed a simple but really kind of ingenious system. Uh, for for cooling their uh, interior uh, habitats, and that was uh, they utilized wet mats of reeds that they hung in windows. Water evaporated from the wet mats, uh, reducing air temperature in the process. And the, then a breeze is blowing through the window and, uh, and and moving through these mats, lowering the indoor temperature. This is the same principle that we see later in stuff like the uh, the swamp cooler, right?
0: that uses like uh, evaporation in a window in order to, to yeah. do this. And th- there are uh, places where this is still a pretty common way of cooling your house actually, just like hanging a wet towel in a window maybe in conjunction with a fan.
1: Yeah, I've also read that it has been common if you if you have laundry that you mm-hmm. are drying, you hang them in the window and then you're killing two birds with one stone. Yeah. Of course, the ancient Romans got in on uh, on the act uh, in in large part thanks to the, you know the aqueducts. Uh, they had many advances in plumbing, which we've covered on the show before, in regards more to, to sewers. But it also meant the Romans had the ability to channel water through indoor pipes in certain homes, uh, cooling them in the process.
0: Yeah, it seems like they had a few strategies that, that were based on water and evaporation of water. Uh, this next thing, it's hard to confirm that this story is true, but. It's reported in ancient sources including the Latin text known as the Historia Augusta or the Augustan history that the 3rd century Roman emperor Elagabalus – had snow carried down from the mountains to his palace so that it could be piled up in a, in a mountain of snow in his orchard to help keep it cool in the summer.
1: Now, I do have to say that, that this sounds like just an epically Roman emperor thing to do. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but I do want to point out that uh, in the 70 great inventions of the ancient world, uh, Brian M. Fagan points out that uh, in Aztec markets, uh, you would have found uh, mountain ice you know, brought down from the mountains. Uh And it would have just been available to purchase, at least if you were Aztec nobility, uh, you could purchase it. But, you know, that's another like non-Roman example of of ice as a regional commodity.
0: Oh, yeah. And this does appear to be in smaller quantities, something that did definitely go on in the Roman world. Now, as for having the the snow brought down from the mountain to make a mountain of snow in his (laughs) garden— you know as with many allegations about the decadent behaviors of particular roman emperors i think sometimes it's hard to know if you're reading something that's based in fact or if it's just libel against an unpopular figure or a historical adversary of the author i think there are a lot of roman histories that are full of allegations like this that may or may not be true right and
1: it also has it has an air of the unsensible to it you yeah. know like there are going to be extremely diminishing returns from trying to produce a pile of snow uh, you know, in your palace or wherever, yeah. whereas having a small amount of ice, a small amount of, of snow, uh, you know, certainly what, whatever would be able to survive the journey could be utilized in an intelligent manner, potentially.
0: Yeah. Well, it does appear to be totally true that in smaller quantities, ice and snow transported down from the mountains. Were stored in special cold cellars and sold as a luxury item, or just used as a luxury item in ancient Rome. Uh, though most of the other references I was reading to imported snow seem to be about people eating it, not making a mountain out of it in their pleasure garden. Ah, so some wealthy ancient Romans, including the Emperor Nero, are said to have eaten snow, sometimes allegedly sweetened with honey or with fruit juice or other flavors, so making snow cones.
1: Yeah, this uh, this has turned up in preliminary research for a potential episode on ice cream.
0: Oh, we got to do ice cream. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we'll come back to that. But I've also seen references to snow being a luxury item for Romans just to be melted down and drunk like water because they believed it was very pure and cold or used to chill wine. Mm. So yeah, if you you know, you know were rich and you could shell out for some fresh snow from somebody's cellar that they had imported down from the mountaintop, you know— Go for it,
1: well, yeah, it would have been exotic it it would have uh, in, in so much of our appreciation of various beverages has to do with the story of it right mm-hmm. and it 's like a it's like a fine bottle of wine it 's the lore of the wine. Uh, to a large extent that you're drinking and tasting and contemplating mm. and uh, if you're adding that with the uh, you know the, the properties of watching the snow melt in the in the glass mm. uh, certainly in this era or in a later era potentially having like a piece of a, of an iceberg uh, you know in your beverage uh, you know that kind of thing it uh, you know, has pizzazz. you can't blame them for being into the idea
0: I think I was reading somewhere that the uh, philosopher Seneca wrote with disdain about youths when they're snow eating you know, as, <laughs> as if he was talking about always on on their iPhones, always eating snow. Uh, either way, carrying snow down a mountain, I think, and dumping it in a pile in your house is not a super efficient way to stay cool overall considering all the work needed to haul the snow down. But I was wondering, well, wouldn't making a big pile of snow actually be effective at cooling your palace? I think the answer is potentially yes. Having a large mass of snow or ice in a room can actually cool the room. As the snow melts and then eventually evaporates, those phase transitions, like we were talking about before, will suck energy out of the surrounding air, which will cool the air in the process. I'm not sure this would do much good just sitting there in an open-air orchard. (laughs) But if you were to pair snow or ice with moving air especially, so maybe you've got people constantly flapping big fans at the Mm -hmm. pile of snow, uh, especially in an indoor space, I think you could actually get significant cooling effects. Even if if you don't have air conditioning in your house, you can probably somewhat cool a room several degrees by like setting up a fan and putting a bottle of frozen water in front of it. This sounds kind of crude, but it actually does work to, to circulate colder air. Uh, and in fact, there are even many large facilities these days, such as large office buildings, that have in recent years replaced their traditional electric air conditioning systems with ice-based cooling systems.
1: Oh, wow. I mean, it, it, on, on, on the surface, it can seem completely backwards, right? Like yeah. you're, you're stepping back into a, a more primal, sort of pre-AC means of cooling your place.
0: Mm-hmm. But this is actually in some cases a more energy-efficient and more cost-effective way to cool a large building. So how on earth would this work? Well, the ice-based cooling system takes advantage of a principle known as load shifting. Because energy cost from an electrical grid isn't just about the amount of energy you use, it's about when you use it. So during the daytime on a hot summer, there are these periods of peak demand on power grids when too many people are all trying to draw lots of electricity at the same time to power their energy hungry
1: building cooling needs. And this can result in what a uh, like rolling brownouts, right? Or
0: yeah, I mean it's in any case it's like it's putting more demand on the system and so at these times of day it, there's more energy inefficiency and higher costs. Instead now, many large buildings use this ice cooling method which switches the building's maximum energy consumption for cooling purposes to nighttime off hours. And these buildings, what they do is they have giant water tanks that can hold thousands of gallons of water. And at night, when electricity demands are low and power is the cheapest, they use that power to freeze the water into ice. Then in the daytime, they use that ice that they made in the nighttime to chill air that is blown throughout the building's ventilation system. The ice melts gradually throughout the day, turns into water, then the melted water is frozen again the next night when power is cheap again. That is impressive. Yeah. yeah.
1: I, I would I would love to – I mean, the, the, of course, one of the, the issues is, you know, we, I may very well have been in buildings that use this and just uh, was not aware.
0: Yeah, we might not know. Yeah. Uh, and, and it works because w- water is actually an extremely powerful thermal energy storage medium. You can think of these giant tanks full of ice as kind of like a thermal battery which can be charged whenever energy inputs are cheapest and you charge it by freezing it. But, of course, these ice-based methods need to be paired with, like, fans to circulate the chilled air. Uh, So we should mention general fan-based cooling effects, which also go way back into history.
1: Yeah, I mean, the simplest version of a fan, of course, is if you have any kind of, like, suitable, uh, you know, Fan-shaped object that you can just uh, flutter with your hand, big leaf or something. Yeah, yeah and uh, and I think that that's one of those things where it, at some point uh, humans figured that out, just basic tool use. Some of the more uh, one of the more elaborate, uh, but still simple and elegant in its uh, simplicity. Uh, one of the devices that certainly comes to mind is the the, the Punga fans used in India uh, uh, from about uh, 500 BC onward. It seems, and these are large sails that are hung from the ceiling and they're flapped manually to circulate air. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I imagine most of you have, have seen like some version of this, if not like a, an image of one used in India or in a depiction of, say, British-occupied India, mm-hmm. then, then you also see them in other historical uh, settings as well, you know, particularly hanging above like a dinner table is a, a prime example of where you might see one.
0: Yeah, fans can be a fantastically useful and very energy-efficient mm-hmm. way to make a room feel cooler. I mean, there's a reason you see fans all throughout the world and all throughout Mm -hmm. history. Uh, But the the, the interesting thing about fans is I sometimes even forget this myself – Fans – unless well, so if if a fan is moving air in or out of a room, it can change the temperature in a room, right? Right. If you're exchanging with an outside
1: system. Yeah, if you have like a fan uh, positioned in a window.
0: Yeah, and the the temperature in the outside is different from the inside. That can actually change the temperature in the room. But fans inside a closed room – do not change the temperature of the room. They don't actually cool the room. In fact, in in most cases, they probably slightly increase the temperature in the room because you're running an electrical device right, in the room. Yeah. And that's heating up somewhat, and so it's probably emitting some heat. So it's moving the air around, but it's not actually making the air any cooler. So why are fans even in a closed room, so good at cooling us down if they don't actually lower the temperature in the room. This is like a a, a fun little, if you want to pause and try to figure this out yourself if you don't already know the answer. I don't know if it's too didactic, but I had fun trying to figure this out last (laughs) night while I was thinking about it. It's because speeding up airflow increases the rate of evaporation from a body of liquid like water and essentially you're a water bag. Your body is a bag of water and your body, as we were talking about earlier, cools by evaporation of sweat. So in order for a fan to cool something, that thing actually probably needs to be wet and I did an experiment like this in my house just last night uh, using a desk fan and a high accuracy instant read kitchen thermometer. So I set the desk fan going on the kitchen counter and I held the thermometer out in front of the fan and though even though standing in front of a fan makes us feel cooler holding a thermometer in front of a fan does not really change the temperature that the thermometer registers for me the naked thermometer probe just hovered around room temperature even though I held it there for a long time it didn't do anything but then I wrapped the thermometer probe in a wet paper towel now this naturally dropped the temperature of the thermometer already just because the water is cooler right and So the water contact drops it down. Then it's stabilized. And when you put the wet paper towel thermometer in front of a fan, the temperature plummets. It drops down as the circulation created by the fast-moving air of the fan speeds up the evaporation of water from that wet paper towel. And the faster the water evaporates, the colder the paper towel gets because it's stealing the energy from the rest of that water. This rapid airflow Robbed the water of energy, made it cooler, and thus you get a nice icy cold paper towel. So when you've got a fan running on you in a room, your body is that paper towel. You're that (laughs) wet paper towel accelerating evaporation off the top of your skin.
1: Now, in this scenario you're again you 're using a desk fan you 're using a rotary fan yeah, uh, so it's interesting to to dive into just you know briefly the history of the rotary fan and it seems that uh the the earliest example of this goes all the way back uh, to uh the Han Dynasty in China. Uh, Han Dynasty engineer Ding Huan created a manually operated rotary fan with seven wheels uh, around one eighty c e uh, and then later on, during the, the Tang Dynasty of the eighth century, hydraulic power was apparently added to this innovation in, as a way of, uh, uh, for, well, basically for use in blast furnaces for industrial, you know, um, uh, air movement, air okay. circulation.
0: So flowing water powered the spinning of a fan to circulate air.
1: Yeah, into a blast furnace. Yeah. Now, but in, in uh, Ding Huan's original idea, it would have required uh, uh, you know, a little uh, human power, like somebody would have been turning a crank or, or something in order to manually operate all of these rotary fans. Uh Uh, So, Juan's initial invention here was reported in the text Miscellaneous Records of the Western Capital and excavations from a former Han tomb in 1971 seems to show the necessary parts to carry this out. Hmm. Uh, So, the seven fans, uh, so these have been 10 feet or 3 meters in diameter, were connected so that one person could power them all. Uh, And this, of course, uh, is another more elaborate means of just circulating airflow, uh, which can can make all the difference in a stuffy room, right? Oh yeah. Uh, now it's not evaporative cooling, though I've seen at least one wiki lit listing that says Ding Huan had an evaporative cooling system. Uh, The cited sources that I ran across on those wikis did not uh, support it. Uh, They they were just talking about uh, what I'm talking about, just air circulation. Uh, So there's
0: no evaporation beyond what's happening on your skin.
1: Correct. And and I didn't see it mentioned in um, uh, Ian Inkster's The History of Technology, which discusses this. But, of Mm -hmm. course, it's entirely within the realm of possibility that he combined a fan system with something like the Egyptian uh, reed mat scenario that we discussed earlier. Right. uh, Having some sort of, uh, you know, wet – Uh, fabric in front of it. Uh Uh, But uh, I could not find direct reference to that myself. Uh, By the way, Ding Huan also uh, allegedly invented something like a zoetrope. According to Lance Day and Ian McNeil in Biographical Dictionary of the History of Technology, it was a, quote, zoetrope lamp which had a thin canopy bearing veins at the top that were caused to rotate by an ascending current of warm air from the lamp. The canopy bore images, which, if the canopy were rotated fast enough, gave the impression of movement.
0: Oh, wow, it's like a it's like a fan for your eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, you know, but it also shows that like this is an, uh, an individual who is clearly interested in uh, you know the uh, the combination of of rotary machinery mm-hmm. and uh, the movements of air. Uh, and also, just throughout Chinese uh, ancient uh, Chinese uh, uh, technology, you also see some other uh, interesting advancements in refrigeration, which uh, maybe we'll come back to later on. All right. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we shall return to Persia.
4: So visit snagajob.com or text SNAG to 242424 to talk to an expert. snagajob.com where America goes to hire.
3: Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200k for 1/8 ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit Time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's PACASO.com.
0: All right, we're back. One genre of ancient cooling technology for buildings is, I think, a really deeply ingenious solution and we find some great examples in ancient and medieval Persia, which would be in modern-day Iran. So this is going to be the idea of wind catchers and uh, a paired technology known as canots. And We can start with a simple version of the wind catcher that's just focused on airflow. So. I want you to picture a building with towers reaching up above the roof on each side. And each of these towers has four ports that can be opened and closed – And each of these towers is hollow, and it connects down to the occupied space within the building. So if the wind is blowing from the west, you would open the west-facing ports on the west side of the building to accept the incoming airflow into the towers. And then on the other side, you would open only the east-facing ports on the east side of the building. So that would be the ports facing away from the wind. Now, due to a couple of quirks of fluid dynamics, if you have a shaft like this that's only open on the side facing away from the wind, air will naturally be pulled up from inside the house through that shaft to flow out in the same direction as the prevailing wind. I've seen this attributed to both the Quanda effect and the Bernoulli effect. I have to admit my fluid dynamics knowledge is not sharp enough to evaluate whether these characterizations are correct. But at least several have definitely uh, attributed it to what's known as the Quanda effect, which just describes a property of airflow in certain scenarios. But anyway, if you've got towers on each side of a building with towers on one side accepting the prevailing wind and and routing it down into the house and then towers on the other side with a negative pressure allowing wind to be sucked up from the inside to blow out with the prevailing wind, it, it creates a complete circuit of airflow where air is sucked down into the house on one side and sucked up out of the house on the other side. And you can use this method to help drive hot air out through the roof or the highest level of the house, taking advantage of this chimney principle we discussed earlier in the episode. Now, of course, at this stage, what I've described so far, this would still just be circulation of hot air from outside, right? Now, we know that even if airflow doesn't actually cool a room, it can help cool your body if just you you keep the air moving because it replaces the air around your skin and helps you evaporate faster. But you can also greatly improve on the wind catcher design and generate a true space cooling effect by pairing it with an underground reservoir or subterranean water channel called a cannotat.
1: Oh wow, so in this it's, it's almost like we're getting into the like the creation of an artificial cave system. Kind of, um, to, yeah. To cool the air. So a cannot is a chamber of underground water
0: resting or flowing deep in the earth surrounded by dense layers of rock. So the water stays cool even on the hottest days. And it can be used for several things. I think from what I've seen, it seems like it's most often used to sort of help channel water down underground from, uh, from higher level water tables up in higher elevations so that the water can be brought down for irrigation in lower lying areas. But in any case, it's underground water. It's a channel of underground water, and the water stays very cool because it's deep underground. So, like, even when the sun heats up the top of the the Earth's surface, it's not heating up that deep bedrock below. Now, picture this. You've got one shaft leading down from the surface down into the cannot that looks like – it works like an intake shaft. And this can be outside the house, drawing in dry air from the desert. And then there's another shaft leading up from the same cannot into the house. Into the inside of the house or whatever space you want to cool. And this is paired with an outflow wind catcher facing away from the wind, which naturally sucks air up from the inside of the house. So the circuit created here pulls air from the outside down through the first shaft, through the cannot to flow over and around the cold water down there in the deep earth, and then up the second shaft into the house. And the dry air passing through the cold, humid environment of the Connaught becomes much cooler as it travels. And the result is that you have cold air pulled up into the house and flowing, which I, I think is just brilliant.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's one of these systems that is um, – it, it's, it, it's at once kind of simple when you, when you have it all explained to you. But it is – especially considering, uh, you, know, uh, you know, ancient buildings. We were talking about a pretty elaborate system here. hmm and you know, I've actually—I don't know if you ran across any like modern uses of this, but I—I I read a couple of references to uh, designs for like large uh, sports facilities hmm. that utilize at least some version of this to try and keep air circulating through, um, you know, through through the uh, uh, the sports arena.
0: Oh, okay. Well, because right, if you've got like a sports arena, it sounds crazy to try to like. Air condition that right yeah. <laughs> with like a with just electric air conditioners yeah so
1: just the sheer scale of the building might require a, you know a, a more um, you know less uh, you know electricity dependent method and mm-hmm. perhaps I don't know it seems like the kind of thing that, that could potentially be utilized in large industrial spaces as well uh, but I didn't run across any examples of that
0: well I don't know about the scalability of this yeah. kind of uh, technology but may, maybe uh, yeah I, ju- I just don't know but I do know there there are ancient examples where. Things like this were used pretty effectively to keep some cellars and basements and, and dwellings very, very cool, and even to the point where they could like be used to store ice in hot places like in Persia.
1: Now we mentioned India earlier uh, on, on the subject of fans, uh, but uh, I want to return to India once more, uh, particularly to uh, the use of step wells and also uh, step ponds. Hmm. So as Morna Livingston and Milo Beach point out in the book, uh, Steps to Water, the Ancient Stepwells of India, quote, the alternating absence and abundance of water is crucial to Indian life. And the stepwells and stepped ponds generated by the use of water are especially imaginative. Mm -hmm. So basically uh, what they're saying is that much of the subcontinent is subject to intense monsoon seasons and intense dry spells. And during the dry spells, people need communal access to water. Mm and during the wet spells, the places they would go for communal access, of course, are going to be uh, likely to flood and, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, greatly. And so, this communal uh, connection with water is an important aspect of Indian life. A prime example of this uh, is uh, would be the, the stepped access that you see to the Ganges River in urban areas. Uh, I think everyone's probably seen images of that, you mm-hmm. know, uh, especially with religious rites and so forth taking place close to the water. Uh, but a, a far less famous famous, less visited, and even less uh, preserved example would be the steppe ponds and the step wells. Uh, these are beautiful, by the way. If you've yes. never
0: looked up images of them, it is some of the most uh, just sort of like eye-rending architecture I've ever seen. And it's actually not all that complicated, it's just like geometrically dazzling.
1: yeah it Yeah, I, I like to think of it this way, a mountain is to a canyon as a ziggurat or a Mesoamerican pyramid is to an Indian stepwell. It looks yes, like yes. there's a hole in the ground and someone like took a ziggurat out of it and left a ziggurat shape uh-huh. in the earth, descending
0: into the earth. Inverted ziggurat, yeah. So like imagine these mini lattices or
1: steps going down uh, to to a ridiculous degree. Yeah, yeah, they're essentially deep holes in the earth, dug down to the water table and then built out. So there's, a, you know, generally a ter- there's terraced access with stairs leading down to it. Um, and one of the points that the, the authors made in this book is that while generally you think of like a, a journey into the deep earth, you know, like it would be It would be claustrophobic. It would be frightening. But that's not the sense you get when you look at at photographs of of Mm stepwells. Like it is is open. It is inviting. It is— uh, it's not a sense of the earth closing around you, but instead one of opening up like a flower.
0: They are, yeah, they're beautiful. And why do I get kind of an M.C. Escher sense from them?
1: Yeah, there is kind of. I think part of it is that sort of inversion scenario. You get uh, it is like an inverted ziggurat when you mm. look at it, and yet so you're 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 sort of climbing up, but you're climbing down. Yeah. Um, so. The the main distinction, though, between step ponds and step wells, according to Livingston and Beach, is that step ponds were used for bathing, and step wells were used more for daily water use. Mm. Now, many of these have fallen into disrepair uh, or have been abandoned in uh, in recent years, in part because of falling water table, uh, you know, which renders them dry and useless, but also due to uh, the the period of British colonial rule in which uh, the the British condemned them uh, as being, you know, potential. Disease with, uh, vectors and so forth, uh, but there has been increased interest in them in recent years to preserve their cultural importance, but also uh, you know to preserve them as potential water sources in a changing climate. Now, obviously, these things
0: are architecturally beautiful, and you can see their importance as a communal water source. But how do they relate to the idea of air conditioning or cooling of spaces?
1: Well, you know, some of them are more out in the open. You, know, you get kind of a sense of almost like a you know, it's like a, a you could easily mistake them for some sort of ornate swimming pool, mm-hmm. sort of a, a you know a construction. But others are uh, other stepwells are part of temple, palace, or other urban complexes. Mm-hmm. So they're part of this other you know, this, this, this larger structure. And here, you know, they, they were of course a means of accessing cool water, which in and of itself is a cooling resource. Livingston and Beach point out that splashing one's face with cool water is a standard Indian means of coping with the heat. Mm-hmm. Uh, a stepwell affords this cooling method. It also affords one the ability to enjoy the shade via the terraces. Uh-huh. Or but
0: if you've got like hot, dry air, you could also have evaporative cooling there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, also, you can rest against the cool stone. That was a, oh, yeah. that was one example they brought up that. I I didn't think of in the earlier portion of the podcast is that it's you can also just like if you find some cool rock to lay upon mm-hmm. that can be used as a, a very primitive form of air conditioning. Uh, but they have they have a wonderful quote in the book about uh, evaporative cooling mm-hmm. via the stepwell. Quote: In dry weather, the stepwell's pool provides some evaporative cooling, but in high humidity, cooling happens only through contact with water. Ah. Uh. Unlike a running fountain, still water in stepwells evaporates little. A moisture-saturated layer forms over the water's surface, and if it is not ruffled by a breeze or broken by splashing, it acts as a vapor barrier. Thus, in hot, humid weather, the body does not get cooled as quickly in a stepwell as it does in air conditioning. Indeed, stepwell air feels breathlessly still.
0: Okay, so if it's humid outside and the air isn't moving, the stepwell isn't going to have much of a cooling effect. But if you had, like, uh, uh, hot, dry air and a breeze blowing through, moving the air along the surface of the stepwell, or if it was moved by humans
1: somehow, Mm -hmm. then it sounds like you're in business. Right. Uh, However, the humidity is going to also serve to conserve the water. Mm -hmm. So it has that going for it. At any rate, these are, again, we do encourage you to do a Google image search on – uh, Indian stepwells, and uh, take a look at some of these. There's some, also some wonderful, like top ten stepwell images. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, it, it makes for some just wonderful uh, architectural uh, photography. We'd love to also hear from anyone who has had the chance to visit these. The, some of the resources I was I was looking at pointed out that you know these are these have at least. In recent years, I don't know if it's changed, uh, but in in the past, it's been a situation where these places, despite just how beautiful they are, they haven't been sought out uh, Mm -hmm. by tourists uh, and and, and sightseers in India. But perhaps that is changing uh, again as as more conservation has been uh, uh, directed at them and perhaps just more just sort of appreciation for what they are.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I think that probably does it for today, but in the next episode, in part two of our exploration of air conditioning, we're going to get more into the modern air conditioner that's based on refrigeration chemistry
1: right but we've uh, hopefully we've we've laid the groundwork for those innovations like like we've shown you what was possible in the the age before these new technological advancements and it's pretty impressive you know it, I think I think a lot of us are going to be surprised because we ha- we are so coddled by modern air conditioning we think that the different the, there's basically a distinction between having AC and just sweltering mm-hmm. and we don't realize that there are all these uh, these smaller things that can and have been been done to uh, help ensure a less sweltering environment.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so many people now live in an AC-tamed world. If the AC is cut off, they don't have all of the normal coping mes- mechanisms that you would have to to get around that heat. Yeah. It's a fundamental softening of our defenses against the the evil sun.
1: <laughs> we will return to air conditioning in the next episode of Invention. In the meantime, check out past episodes at inventionpod.com. And indeed, let us know, uh, you know, what, what is your relationship with air conditioning? And, and particularly, what, what is your relationship with some of these these alternative methods of dealing with the heat? Do you still employ some of them today? Uh, Perhaps you have, you know, older members of your family have told you about how they used to do things before air conditioning. We would love to hear about any of that.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us to send feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, to join the Committee to Extinguish the Sun, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com.
2: Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.